As you're being seated, I'd love for you to have your Bible open to 1 John. Uh, we're wrapping up uh, our journey through 1 John here on uh, the last weekend of summer. I don't know about you, but it seems like fall missed the memo uh, that it's supposed to wait a few weeks before it uh, turns. But uh, we're here on Labor Day weekend, and we've been journeying through as a church body, uh, as a church family through this letter known as 1 John over these weeks, and I'd love for you to have it uh, in front of you. And as we start uh, this final message in this series, we have to be reminded uh, as we end where we started. And we have to remember the context. We have to remember why this guy named John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, one of the apostles, why did he take the time to write this letter? Um, every book of the Bible has a context. It has uh, something going on that it was written into. And, how, and understanding the bigger picture helps us understand the books of the Bible. And so I would encourage you, whenever you're reading the Bible and um, maybe have a commentary with you or uh, you can find a bunch of resources online, just to understand in some way, why was that written? What was happening? And when we think of the context with 1 John, why that was written, it's actually not a pleasant one. Uh, it was conflict. Uh, conflict being a topic that we don't uh, naturally like, gravitate towards, want to talk about, think about. Like, and I just love to study conflict and read about it. And, and like, we just don't. We, we, we naturally at times will move away uh, uh, from conflict, move away from things that are uncomfortable. Uh, maybe that is the best choice given the circumstances, but uh, sometimes that's not the best choice. But, but John doesn't write just because he has nothing else to do. He doesn't write a letter just because, you know, I haven't reached out to these people at this church uh, in so many years or so many months. Like, you're just wondering how they're doing. Um, John heard, uh, probably months later after what had taken place uh, within this church that he helped start, uh, some conflict that had, uh, not external conflict, this isn't uh, like the community that the church is located in, uh, doing things towards the church, it's not persecution, uh, people from the outside like doing things to, to followers of Jesus in that community, this is all internal. This is internal conflict within the body of Christ, uh, which is now Western Turkey. That's where they're located. That's where they're living, uh, have their roots set down. And, and John writes this letter to really be a source of encouragement. Um, he doesn't get into, as we, if you've tracked with us over these weeks, he doesn't get into the nitty gritty of the conflict. He, there are highlights of it in moments where he talks about what was happening. We get a sense of what the issues were, what happened within the body of Christ there, uh, that church. But, but he doesn't spend a lot of time on the nitty gritty of the conflict, but what he takes uh, five chapters, again, when he wrote his letter, there was no chapters, verses, I think we know that, but just want to say it again. Um, when he wrote this letter, sat down at a table at desk with whatever writing utensil he could use, um, he, he wrote uh, really focusing on the implicate, like the results, the impact of the conflict. How are people feeling? What are they questioning? What, what is their relationship with God like? What is their relationship with other people like in the midst of great stress? So he doesn't get into the nitty gritty of the conflict. It's more the impact that it's having on people. We have to remember, like these are real people that received this letter some 2,000 years ago. And, and these are real men, women, and children who 
We're, we're in this close-knit community of faith, and within a matter of weeks, maybe months, it's just blown apart. I mean, people that they prayed with, read the scriptures with, talked together, shared their lives together with, are no longer part of their fellowship. Friends maybe became enemies. And now these people who have left their fellowship are saying what we believe is right. And we have received this special revelation from God, and what you believe now is wrong. And so they're trying, this group that's left is trying to pull these others, like, come with us. What we believe is right. What you've been taught about Jesus is wrong. So in the midst of that, I mean, when the rug has been pulled out from underneath you like that, when your life has been kind of turned upside down by those you trusted maybe even the most, there's natural questions that rise to the surface. Why is this happening? What is happening? Who am I? What do I believe? What is true? Who is God? All of these questions would have naturally risen to the surface. And that's why John takes the time to pen this letter to encourage them, to offer support and love and guidance. And here is where I think we can today connect with this letter. Because we've all had the experience, maybe it's not recently, but I would say somewhere in your lifetime, we have all experienced the rug being pulled out from underneath us as it relates to life. The circumstances will vary, but all of us can relate as human beings to that experience when something you did not see coming all of a sudden shows up. And it's painful and it's difficult, it leaves you with, it leaves us with a lot of questions that these original readers, recipients of this letter would have had. And that's where today, you know, we're not just addressing the, the topic, we're not talking about church conflict, we're not, you know, but, but I think there's, a, there's an overarching uh, reality that we can all, ex- we've all experienced as human beings, Life being turned upside down, something happening at work, something happening in your home, in your family, uh, and, and at school, like a, a difficulty, pain, suffering. So all these things stir up all these questions, and that's why we can again turn to First John, these last several verses, to find some encouragement, to find some help. I think what John is trying to do is he's trying to uh, offer help and guidance and sure them up in the midst of these uncertainties, what he's, what he's really asking or saying is, what do I know to be true in the midst of uncertainty? What do I know to be true? Like when everything else is shaken and I don't know what I'm going to hold on to, what's true? What do I know deep down this is true? We're going to talk about four anchors that we know. Four anchors that John wraps up his letter with to help provide some foundation, something that the original readers of this letter and you and I can hold on to. Because some today, as you come into this space, are carrying those circumstances with you. Not all of us. For some of us, life is wonderful right now. It's great. Some of you even thinking about this topic, you might be like, what's coming? Like, I don't know. But like some of you, like right now, these circumstances, again, the rug has been pulled out from underneath you. And you're wondering, what do I know to be true in the midst of these uncertainties that I'm facing? So John's going to lay out four anchors. And before we get to the anchors, we need to understand this word no. 
It's a simple word, and we kind of come, come to it with our own maybe ideas of what it means. And we need to understand what does the word know mean in 1 John, because you're going to hear it a number of times in just a few verses. John is going to say, we know, we know, we know. So what do we know? What does know mean? What know means is it's, it's not just knowing information or facts or the data. It's, it's much more personal. It's to try to help you understand. It's the difference between knowing uh, a celebrity or a professional athlete via social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like know, like some might say, well, I know LeBron James because I follow him on Twitter. Well, you know about LeBron James because you follow him on Twitter or Instagram, wherever you follow him. But, but it's the difference between knowing LeBron James on social media to knowing your spouse or a close friend. It's, I know about this person, but I don't really know them. I know my spouse. I know this close friend. It's much more intimate, personal, firsthand. It's not a theory or an idea. And what John says throughout this letter are four anchors that we know. Not an idea, but a reality, personal experience. And John outlines four of them. We'll move through them uh, fairly quickly. First anchor is this. We know, these are just taken from the text, we know we possess eternal life. And I'm going to let you know as we go through these, none of them are going to be earth shattering. Like, oh my goodness, never heard that before. But John is bringing them back to what do they know in the midst of these uncertainties. We know personally, intimately, experientially, we possess eternal life. We have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says this, I write these things, this is why I wrote, this is why I took the time to pen this letter and send it on to your way. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's saying, I wrote to people that had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. These, there's not a doubt, like, are they Christians? Are they not Christians? John wrote to people who believe in Jesus Christ in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Why? So that, here it is, the first no, you may know that you have eternal life. You might say, why does that matter, John? John, why do you... And that's not the first time. John, and throughout these, these last several verses, is going to reiterate some things he's already said before. He's already talked about eternal life a number of times throughout this letter. So he's bringing it back up here. And, and there's a number of reasons, and we'll just talk about one. I think he first just wants them to understand that <laughs> eternal life is much more, friends, than just describing a length, a long length of time. Sometimes in church, we hear phrases like eternal life, and we already have built into our minds ideas that what it means. And when we think of eternal life, the immediate uh, interpretation is it's describing a long life. It's eternally. We're going to live forever. And I want to say, yes, that's what it is, but it's not all it is. Eternal life just does not describe a length of time. But it also describes a relationship that we have with God that does last forever. 
Here's one example of where we get an idea of what eternal life means. It's more than just the length of time. John, uh, just this verse here on the screen, John 17, the, the context of those words is Jesus praying. This is the, uh, probably the night before he's arrested and uh, betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. That he's praying in John 17. And he prays this towards the beginning of John 17. He says, now this is eternal life. So he's describing, here's what it is. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying to his Father, so that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. He doesn't talk at all about time, length of time, length of life eternally, but he describes a relationship. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and me, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, one and the same, the, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, that you, they may know us, you, me. It's relationship, it's intimacy. So John takes the time as he wraps up this letter to remind them of this relationship they have. Remembering the current, the context, their lives have been turned upside down. And in the midst of it, he's reminding them that God has not abandoned you. Because you possess eternal life. And that means God goes with you and is in you and you in him. And he hasn't left you alone. And for some of you today in the circumstances you carry into this room, you're wondering, does God really care? Maybe you have felt alone. And if you are a follower of Jesus, would we remember you possess eternal life and his presence goes with you and is with you in the midst of what you're facing. John talks about how this relationship impacts prayer and how we pray and what we, how we ask. And that's where he goes, this, again, out of the context of relationship. Verse 14, he says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. So we have, because of this relationship, we have confidence. We have boldness. We, we don't have to wonder, can I do this? But God, John says you can approach with confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, have, what we asked of him. So John goes to prayer. He talks about prayer. He talks about intimacy, that, that out of this relationship, like with any person, we have a friendship, a relationship with. Part of that relationship is conversation with your spouse, with your kids, with your family, with coworkers, friends. We have conversation. And out of relational intimacy with God, we have conversation with him. We pray and we ask and he hears this word here, that he hears us, is talking more than just that God heard what I said. You've heard some prayers uh, from the platform this morning. You, uh, maybe on the way here, or before you came here, prayed uh, in some way. You will maybe pray later on uh, today, maybe with your kids before bed. And So it's more than God just hearing the prayers that are said. But when it says he hears, it's responding with favor. And that's why John can say you will have, you will receive whatever you ask. Now, we need to clarify the whatever you ask. 
Because some read that and hear that, and not just here, but there's even in John 15 where uh, John also talks about ask whatever you wish. Some take that to mean, well, if I just ask for anything and I tack on to the end, according to your will, God, (laughs) I'll get it. And I want to say that's not right. (laughs) It's not how it works. I think we even know that's not, that doesn't work that way. But what, again, remember the, the relational intimacy that John talked about for. We possess eternal life, which means we, we, we have God in us, in us, in him. And out of that relational intimacy, we will more and more over time, as we mature as followers of Jesus, we will, we, our, our will as we ask will become more and more in line with his will. Prayer is not just about asking. It is about asking. He says, ask. So we should ask. But it's not just about asking. It's also about listening. And many times we, we, we come, we approach God in prayer, and all we do is just talk. All we do is ask. We, we have the list. We have the needs. We run through them. And we never even take time to ask and listen and just pause and say, how might God want me to pray about this? God, I'm just going to listen for a few moments before I speak. And I think in those moments of listening, he speaks. And I think what he speaks is more in line with his will. And then we ask according to his will. And we receive his will. It's our will moving up more and more to match up with his will. In prayer. And John, even in the midst of what these people are facing, is, in, is it laying out, a, I think, a good pattern of prayer. And for you and I, in the midst of circumstances we're facing, we are praying about them. The, the, the circumstances you face, circumstances are, we're facing, we pray about them. And are we taking time to listen? And then John even takes prayer one step further into these few verses here, verse 16 and 17. Let me read them, and then we'll, we'll unpack them as best we can. So verse 16, it says this, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin, that does not lead to death, he should pray. So the same theme of prayer is continued on, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. This is, uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. I want to be honest with you, this is one of those passages in scripture, a few verses in scripture that you look at over a week and it's like, what in the world, John, are you saying there? (laughs) What does that even mean in the context of what you've just talked about? So we're going to do our best just to kind of unpack what John is talking about because it seems like John is saying there's different kinds of sin and John is saying, for one, pray for them. For another, don't pray for them. So what is John, how does this fit into what John has been talking about? What is he saying here? I think to help us understand what John's saying, we just need to turn back a couple chapters to chapter 3, this idea of death and the sins that lead to death, we'll talk about it. Chapter 3, verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. There's a lot of things that happen at salvation that we don't see with our physical eyes. We don't see it with our physical eyes. Uh, 
There are so many things that happened in the midst of a moment of surrender, of submission, where we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, or we surrender our lives to him. There are so many things that we don't see with our physical eyes that are taking place. This is one of them. What John says in other um, other biblical writers, Bible writers say, is that we have been transferred. When at the moment of salvation, there's this change, there's this transformation, there's this transition from the realm or the sphere of death to life. John says we have passed from death to now life, and that's where we live. Even though we can't physically see that with our eyes, John says in the spiritual realm, that is what has taken place. Now we are in Christ. Life. So going back to chapter 5 in those maybe confusing verses, I believe what John is unpacking, talking about, is how we're to pray for those whose sins, they sin, but they don't lead to death. So he's talking about followers of Jesus, who all of us as followers of Jesus, like we will sin, but because of our trust and our faith in Jesus, it doesn't ultimately lead to death. It doesn't lead to death. So John says... You're in this community of believers. You see someone sin. Say something. Do something that you know is sinful. Do you have a responsibility as another member, follower of Christ in that community? And John would say, yes. You have a responsibility to first you pray. You pray for that person. You pray for repentance. You pray for confession. You you plead before God on their behalf. I believe assumed in this text is that you'll have conversations about it too. Because assumed in this text is the sense of relationships, community. These people were not meeting in a large building, a large group like we are today, like we do here at Hope Church. But they met in homes, probably 12 to 20 people meeting in a home every week. So imagine the sense of community relationships that were developed there. So even an application of this for us is even what Jeff, uh, Pastor Jeff talked about earlier about the message coming up next week about discipleship we would say one of the primary environments for discipleship, growth in our walk with God to take place is in community. This is a piece of discipleship, but friends, this isn't it. You can't be really known in a group this size. Like you can't, like I won't see necessarily, unless you do something in this room, (laughs) we might not see you sin. But if I'm sharing my life with you, if we're meeting on a regular basis, just one-on-one or uh, two or three people or maybe 12 people in a small group, and we are meeting on a regular basis, we are going to get to know each other more than just surface-level conversations. So John is saying when you see that, because you have a relationship with that person, you pray for them and you reach out to them. And you pray that God would grant them life. You pray they would repent. Now, let me just make two comments on what John is not saying. John is not saying 
that prayers for sins leading to death are prohibited. He's not saying never pray for you know, people that are, don't know Jesus, that their sins will continue to lead towards death. Separation. He's saying, he's not prohibiting that. Like they never pray. No, we should. And he's also not saying that there is a level of sin beyond which prayer is useless. Like he's not saying it reaches a point where you just say, don't pray for them anymore. That's not what he's saying. John, I think, is emphasizing the responsibility we have in the body of Christ in the midst of relationships to pray and reach out for one another because we know we possess eternal life. All right, let's move through these next three pretty rapidly here. <laughs> Verse 18, for the, the anchor is this. We know we are born of God. We've been born again. Verse 18, John says, we know, there's that word again, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. John has talked about this repeatedly throughout his letter. Someone who's been born again doesn't continue in the pattern of sin. We'll come back to that. The one who has been born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him or literally means cannot touch him. So John is saying we've been born of God. We will not continue to sin. We talked about how that's more than what John is saying is he's not saying we'll never sin. We will. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But it's really the attitude. Do we have the attitude that we're just going to keep doing this behavior? We're going to keep looking at we're look, what we look at on the internet, the movies we watch, the, the things we like. Just continue in this sinful behavior. Just I'm going to say whatever I want to say to people and it doesn't matter what I say. Like I'm just going to keep saying those things. Um, and it's also, sin isn't just the things we know we shouldn't do. It's also the things we should do that we don't. We have to remember that. So, but it's all about attitude. Is my attitude, I'm just going to live however I want to live. Or because I've been born of God, born again, his spirit is in me. And when I do sin, when I say something I shouldn't, and when there's things I know I should be doing that I'm not as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to acknowledge them. I'm going to with the help of others and God's spirit, I'm going to address them. And I believe John is also talking about how we are in this process of continuing not to sin. We are in this pr- pr- process of becoming more like Jesus. So we're going to be live differently and speak differently and act differently. And even God using the difficult circumstances that we are in, in that transforming process. We know we've been born of God. The third anchor is this. We know we are children of God. Again, something John has talked about before. We know we are children of God. We know in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You might say that's not the most encouraging verse you've ever read. But I believe it's good for us to be reminded because we can get lulled into the mundane of life, just, a, just the normalcy of life, and totally miss the reality. Forget, maybe it's a better way to say it, the reality that we have an enemy. And I, I want to say what John is addressing, this conflict that has risen up. Again, I'm not saying these people are robots and Satan made these people do what they did in First John. But Satan definitely wants to tear churches apart. That's reality. 
So it's good for us to be reminded that we are living in a world right now that for a time is under the reign, the rule of the evil one. But I need to, we need to know it's restrained. It's not just Satan's doing whatever he wants. But there's a leash, so to speak. Uh, Lori and I, about five, six months after we were married, we made the choice um, to get a dog. Uh, wasn't really one of those, like, let's think through it, talk about it, you know, implications, you know, what does it mean to go away with a dog, all those types of things. It was, hey, the pounds, let's drive, we're driving by the pound one day, let's stop by the pound. You can't just stop by the pound with, without walking home or going home with a dog or cat or whatever, you know. So, sure enough, there's a little puppy giving us a sad eyes, Bud comes home with us. And uh, so we got Bud, and Bud started out, you know, like all puppies, small and cute, and then became a 150-pound monster. And a uh, very gentle monster, but just huge, you know. But I remember when we were trying our best to train this new dog, and, you know, we'd have him on the leash, and hook, you know, hook the leash in the ground, or we'd hold the leash. And like most dogs, uh, when Bud saw a uh, squirrel, cat, Another dog, jogger, uh, like he wants, like he's going to go after them. And I mean, I just remember holding the leash thinking, this leash is going to run out, bud. Like you're going to hit the limit of the leash. And, but I mean, time after time after time, he'd run as hard as he could after that cat. And as soon as that leash caught, you know, pulls him right back. And, you know, he'd I have to pull him back. And, and I just, I feel like I should say too, no dogs were harmed in the usage of this uh, illustration. Um, but it was like there's power there, but it's leashed. It's under control. It can only go so far. Friends, right now, the evil one is allowed to go so far. There's coming a day where he's going to be done away with completely. We can't do anything else. But right now, we're living in a world where he is allowed to go to a certain degree. Now, some of us say, I mean, I wish it wasn't so far. Yeah. I think we would all acknowledge that. But we have to remember what John said, we are children of God. And that means, even as John said before, the evil one can't touch us. That does not mean we're immune to temptation. That doesn't mean we're immune to sin. But he can't take us. He can't touch us. Because we are children of God. And that's who we are. In the circumstances you're facing, might you remember the security that that brings. And then lastly, this, the last anchor is this. We know we are in him who is true. We know we are in him who is true. John says, we know. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Jesus, through the life of Jesus, we get understanding of who God is and what he's like. So John says, so that, why do we have this understanding? So that we may know him who is true. We may know him who is true. And we are in him. And us, he and us, and us in him. Who is true? He repeats himself. Driving home the point. Even his son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. John is reminding them of what is true. Because many of their questions are wondering, what in the world is true? What can I hold on to? What can I believe? John is making the point in these last few verses that Jesus is true even though all else fails. 
Some of these people have been betrayed by close friends that John writes to. They thought there was this close friendship, trust. And now it's just shattered. And they're wondering, what is true? What can I believe? And John is saying, Jesus is true when all else fails. He's true. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. And John ends his letter, honestly, very abruptly. There's not a blessings, take care, have a great day. He says in verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And he ends. These people in the original context were around people living in a culture that had idols, images, statues, stone, bronze, metals, whatever. And these people would bow down to them and worship them. They were going to these things to find life. For us today, I'm almost certain we probably don't have statues that when you go home today, you're going to be bowing down to or offering sacrifices to. Uh, uh, but the reality is there are idols. We, we always have to think about this. We have idols. And I'm learning this about idols that Sometimes we don't realize someone or something is an idol until that thing or someone fails us because it reveals our hearts. We, we many times build up people, uh, situations, places, things as idols, and we don't even know we're doing it. But whenever that is, whatever that idol is, and we don't call it an idol because we don't realize it's an idol, whenever that, whatever that is that we are going to for life, and try to meet some need in us that it can't meet, when that fails us, in whatever way it fails us, I think it reveals our hearts. And John, even in this moment, is saying, even in your difficulty, it's revealing hearts, your heart. And know what is true, what you can cling to when all else fails. When I was 12 years old, uh, I was playing in... uh, Little League, and our team was pretty good that year. We made it to the championship game. It was the bottom of the seventh. The game was tied. I was on the mound, and uh, I walked the first guy. And I felt like I could get the guy at first base with a pickoff move. So I, I first, before I pitched to the next batter, I turned and I threw to the first baseman, and it was a bad throw. I mean, it was awful. It skied over the first baseman's head, and the fence wasn't close to first base, so the ball just kept rolling. And that kid ran from first base to second base, saw the first baseman still going after the ball, ran all the way to third base. And now he's on third base, winning runs 90 feet away, and I'm just sitting there like, oh, man, this is it. I throw the next pitch. The kid hits a single up the middle, game over. They win, and they're celebrating on the field. And our coach did a wonderful job encouraging us and trying to lift up our spirits and saying we had a great year and kind of held it all together until we got in the car. My dad and I are driving home uh, from that uh, baseball game. And as soon as we hit the car, got in the car and started driving home, I just lost it. And just, you know, as a 12-year-old boy, like, that's everything. Like, championship is everything. It's what you play your summer baseball for. And just, you threw the pitch. You threw the pickoff move. It was bad. And it's, like, all on me. And just sobbing on the way home. And, and you know, it was just quiet for a little while as we drive home. My dad, uh, before we got to our house, before we pulled in our driveway, and I remember this to this day. He said, he said, Tom, he said, I just want to let you know. He said, I love you, and I'm proud of you. And that's all he said. I knew those things about my dad. Like I knew he loved me. 
I knew my dad was proud of me. But in that moment, as a 12-year-old boy, I was shaken. It was Little League Baseball, but that was everything as a 12-year-old boy. I was shaken. I already knew those things about my dad, that the way he viewed me. But just hearing them from his mouth encouraged me and helped. And today, I don't know what circumstance you bring here, carry here, are weighed down by here. I don't pretend to know all the circumstances of, our, of your life and what's happening, but I'm trusting, I believe, that some of us, maybe many of us, have, in different ways have felt, because of the circumstance of your life, like the rug has been pulled out. And it's been a challenging month, year maybe for you, week, I don't know what it might be. And these things we talked about, I'm pretty sure you know already. But might as you hear them, not from John and not from me, but from God, your Father, might you know that you possess eternal life and that he's with you. Might you know you've been born of God and he's going to use all circumstances to make you more like him. Might you know you are his child and that he has you when all else is raging, the circumstances are raging around you. And might you know that you are in him who is true. When all else fails, he's true. He's eternal. I want to pray for us and then we'll sing a song declaring together what we believe. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you for this journey. I want to thank you for this letter. Not pleasant circumstances, not, uh, not maybe something we like to talk about or think about. The topic of conflict, pain, difficulty. But yet, Lord, this is a reality in our lives. Maybe not right now, but has been and probably will be at some point. So, Lord, even these last few verses from John, would they be a source of encouragement, of life, life-giving words to us? Things we know. We know these things. But I pray that it would move. The knowledge and the experience would move from our heads to our hearts. It would move into our souls and they would give us strength to face tomorrow, to face today, to face this week, to face difficult conversations, to face difficult diagnosis, to face difficult appointments because of what we know to be true. So thank you for this journey. Thank you for these words you've spoken to us even today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.